0: Good morning. Good morning. So it's, uh, it's extremely awkward for me to, to be in the preaching seat today, but uh, for those of you who do not know me, my name's Greg. I'm one of the elders here at Renovation Church with uh, Matt and Rusty. Matt's the guy who was just leading worship for us this morning, and Rusty's the other guy back there playing the drums. Um, it's such an amazing opportunity. I know I say this, you know, I, th- I think it's biannually. I, I preach, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's such a great opportunity every single time to just be able to sit and behold Jesus Christ with all of you, and and just behold His glories as a community together this morning. I've uh, I don't often get that experience, and uh, it is something that. I think we often take for granted, uh, which I'm the worship elder here, so what do you think we're going to be talking about today? Well, it's going to be worship, right? And uh, being in the graces of corporate worship. I had a moment the other day in my car, and um, we were driving to get some tea from David's Tea, and um, I saw the clouds in the sky and they just peaked up like a mountain and I could see like the you you get this beautiful picture of just like the outline and the beauty that is in that and it was a, a good time of reflection for me a time of worship personal worship uh, where I got to just behold the spectacular tremendous power and glory that God has But we were made for more than private devotions. As nice as it can be to tuck ourselves away in some nook or cranny, or all by our lonesome, or just reading the scriptures, we often just read what we want to read. We pray pray the prayers that we prefer. We play the songs that we like. We memorize the verses that we want to pick. And we fast from food when it's convenient for us. As important as it is to be in a regular rhythm of private worship in these personal disciplines, it's it's not the pinnacle. It's not the end. It's not the pinnacle of the Christian life. We were made to worship Jesus together. Among the multitude, with the great horde swallowed up in the magnificent mass of the redeemed god didn't fashion us to enjoy him finally as solitary individuals but as happy members of a countlessly large family when the fog of everyday life clears and we catch a glimpse of heaven's bliss we don't find ourselves sequestered at a study desk when i was staring at that cloud i wasn't at a study desk we are we're not hidden alone in a prayer closet or even standing alone before a great canyon or a beautiful mountain. And heaven's not going to be like that. We're going to be joyfully part of the worshiping throng of Christ's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So we were made for corporate worship. Corporate worship is the single most important means of grace and our greatest weapon in fighting for joy. Because like no means, corporate worship combines all three principles of the ongoing grace. As, as we've been going through this sermon series, Habits of Grace, we've, we've heard the importance of sitting in the streams of his word, having his ear in prayer and in fellowship. But it's corporate worship with its preaching, its sacraments, its praises, confessions, petitions, and thanksgiving, which accurately and acutely brings together the gifts of his voice, ear, and his body. And so according to Donald Whitney, there's an element of worship in Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by worship, watching worship, just watching. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in meeting together with other believers. And I know uh, perhaps you've had experience like me and, um, and haven't really seen the benefits of corporate worship as a means of grace. But some of us can maybe even say what Martin Luther said here. He says, At home in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church where the multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled in my heart. And it breaks its way through. I pray that we could see this clearly as we reflect on Psalm 73 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up the Psalm 73, and I will read for us the Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through the fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But then I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them on slippery slopes, you make them fa- fall and ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. God, I ask that you, in your spirit, you open up our hearts to hear your proclaimed word. How we hear your character in our discontent. Our hearts may be transformed by your word, and I pray that you prick us enough with your goad to push us into loving community and corporate worship. And I pray this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. So talk a little bit about the poem. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of an outline from the get-go here. So the poem itself, Psalm 73 here, is cast in a form of a retrospective narrative. So from the very beginning, the, the speaker recalls his existential crisis of faith when he is caught in his heart envying the prosperous wicked. The opening sequence is as follows. It's a a statement of safe position at which the speaker landed at the end, a victory speech at the finish line to prevent the possible misunderstanding regarding what is to follow. And he gives a preview of the crisis, a portrait of the prosperous wicked as they are in themselves and as viewed by the culture at large. The speaker's self-pity and discontent over having lived a godly life of self-denial, while the wicked are prospering. Right in the middle of the poem, we have the reversal, the speaker's recovery of the right view of God in life when he worshiped God in the temple, in the sanctuary. In the second half of the poem, we revisit the topic and uh, of the first half as follows. A second view of the prosperous wicked, the reason the speaker changed his attitude. The speaker's retrospective put down on his early ungodly attitude when he envied the wicked. And then we have a second view here of the godly life, a spiritual inventory of what the speaker possesses in God and now perceives to be better than temporary earthly prosperity of the wicked. So that's the basics of the outline of Psalms. We see a man, Asaph, who is confused with what is happening around him. What's being displayed is not consistent with God's character and God's promises. He sees the wicked coming up. They're doing well. They're, in every single way, they're being fed well. Their, their riches seemingly are unceasing. And in verse 13, he reflects on this. He says that in vain I have kept my heart clean. He says he's, he's done good things. He's telling God, like, hey, I've done all of these good things. And these are the things that are in line with being in tune with God and being obedient to his law. Yet still, evil people, the wicked, have nothing happen to them. It's, it's as if God is silent in the midst of all this treachery. He's overlooking the evil, seemingly. This past week, I know a couple of us were in the humility class that uh, I just concluded, and we discussed just this concept. Uh, this was evident in the life of the prophet Habakkuk. He was upset, complaining, and confronting God about this seeming injustice happening in his life. And God was telling him what he was doing, this injustice. But what was going on? Habakkuk was on the verge of not believing who God is, and what he was about. This injustice in Habakkuk's sight had blinded him from a bigger picture, and this is just the case with the psalmist. In both Asaph and Habakkuk, we see significant change in perspective brought on by something. What is it that has changed the hearts of these two men to desire to the desires of God? I would argue it's, it's worship, worship with his brethren, worship with his community. And it is a God's grace, it is God's grace to discipline us in worship. The psalmist Asaph talks about his injustices, his envy and his dissatisfaction with what, what's going on. I mean, he, he, called, he says they're arrogant, they're wicked, they're prosperous. And he was envious of all of these things. They're not troubled like the rest of us are. They don't have, you know, hearts that are, you know, good. They have hearts that are malice. And they, and they actually want, they seek, and they threaten oppression on all these people. But their people come back and they're like, oh, no, everything's okay. They find no fault in it. What's he saying? We see a theme here. The theme of this, this, this psalm echoes, I have envied the world. It makes it clear that the whole psalm is a meditation on the problem that God is good to Israel and in response to those in Israel who are pure in heart, for those who love God wholeheartedly. While there seems to be arrogant or boastful people who enjoy prosperity, these people despise the covenant and are proud of their disdain for the faithful. They are free from the troubles we all face. They live apparently carefree lives of the arrogant. And in sort of a vivid character sketch, they have no pains. Their bodies are fat. They're sleek their eyes swell out of the fatness of their faces, a sign of prosperity. And yet, on the inside, their hearts overflow with follies. The height of their arrogance comes to the expression in verse 11 when they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're virtually defying God to prove that they know their evil and intend not to do anything about it. So, what's Asaph's major understanding here? He's a person who is holding to a simplistic understanding of God. This causes him to be envious of the world. He's quoting what the people say in verse 11 when, when they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? How many of us have been in similar situations? We have seen what God is doing around us, and it makes absolutely no sense. Sometimes we want to do anything to get away from it. We want to escape. We want to avoid it. We run away. Sometimes we fall into an understanding that God just doesn't care. How could God be with me? All these things are happening. And why does he do these things? The people who are supposed to be your enemy in this situation, they get away. They're free from troubles. So we stand here and we say with the psalmist, I have a troubled life. So why do these people you hate who hate you, I mean, have a life that seems to be so carefree? We, like Asif, have a tremendous misunderstanding of who God is and what he is doing. We need to seek joy in our salvation. This is part of how God disciplines us in worship. He gives us an opportunity to seek our joy in our salvation. The salvation brought from Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what do we get here? God changes our perspective. In corporate worship, he changes our perspective. And one of the means of grace is that God does this is in the discipline of ourselves, and of the world around us in corporate worship. It is God's grace to discipline us in worship. So, we all may have a little bit of skewed views on what worship is, what it looks like. Um, some of us only have a view of worship as a corporate worship event setting. Some of us maybe have uh, too high of a view of personal worship. Um, My Yoda master, Bob Coughlin, has an amazing uh, sentence and how he defines worship. And I I love that guy, so it's pretty awesome. So, biblical worship is God's covenant people recognizing, reveling in, and responding rightly to the glory of God and Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I said that really fast, but I'm going to break it down for you, so don't worry. Biblical worship is is God's covenant people. So, break it down. First part, biblical worship. It's to separate what we do as Christians from all other types of worship. This also implies that God is the one who determines how we should worship him. God determines what biblical worship is. Biblical worship is God's covenant people. Covenant people, God's plan from the beginning of creation has been to redeem a people for his own possession, who would give him glory endlessly. The basis of our relationship with him is his unchanging character, his unfailing love, and his unrepeatable sacrifice for our sin. Recognizing. What are we recognizing? This implies mental awareness and perception. And as opposed to high, highly individualized emotional encounters. So it's, it's not highly individualized emotional encounters, but it's a mental awareness as well and perception. We recognize those things. Reveling in. And one of our definitions for revel is to get great pleasure from. It is a sense that we revel in the glory in, of God in Christ when we find our highest joy, pleasure, satisfaction, and good in knowing God. We are worshiping Him. Although worshiping God involves more than our emotions, it doesn't involve less than that. And responding rightfully There are countless wrong ways to respond to God, including ungrateful anger and idolatry. Our right response includes both adoration and action, both what we do specifically in meetings as well as all of our life. To God's glory in Christ, we have been saved to see that God's glory has been most clearly revealed in the person and work of his Son. This is a precious truth that we must proclaim and protect. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, while they may disagree on the uh, applications, charismatics, and cessations, uh, people who don't believe the gifts continue, uh, can both affirm that worship of God is impossible apart from the power of God's Spirit. So this basic definition encompasses a lot. We just defined it, segmented it out. And it sounds like everything that we do is worship. Our identity is to be a worshiper. We can do this in any of our rhythms of life. But to do this, we must be disciplined, right? There's a a knowledge, there's an application of what we are learning and what we are proclaiming. So worship is discipline, but it's... It's personal, and it's corporate, and it shapes our view and understanding of the world around us. And in worship, we can have a correct response. We can respond to God and what he is doing in the way of adoration and action. In worship, he can find our highest joy and pleasure, satisfaction in God's glory in Christ. We can do that. This undoubtedly is done with the aid of the Spirit. So, what does this adoration look like? Well, it looks like an overwhelming joy in our salvation. Dare I say, emotion. This is brought on by not only the understanding of God in his word, but our joy in seeing this displayed. God uses his word to invoke affections and feelings that find true satisfaction in the life of God. Death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our greatest gift. And it takes sitting in the streams of his voice, his ear, and fellowship with the saints. And there's one particular place in which we get to do all three. Only one place where we get to do all three. It's right now. What we're doing right now. Right here, right now. It's corporate worship of his gathered saints, of his people. Corporate worship in itself is a means of grace. Isaf says here, all in vain I have kept my heart clean. And then he continues. He said, but I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. He's seeing his world around him. He doesn't know what is going on until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. So what is happening? He, Asaph, he went and he publicly pondered and understood what was happening to him. And where did he do it? He did it in the temple. He did it in corporate worship the gathered worship of his people. That is what he did. And when he went to the temple, he understood what was happening. He found the answer in the sanctuary. To walk around with such inner conflict is deeply painful. And it was made worse how wearisome it was to understand what was even going on. It seemed impossible, but When he goes into the sanctuary of God, the holy place where God's people gathering together for worship, the light is finally allowed to break through. The key is to contemplate the end, the outcome, the outcome of the lives of the arrogant and the outcome of the lives of the faithful. Like Asaph, we can contemplate the end of the outcome of the bad things, the works of the arrogant, the prideful, the lust, and the hatred. But at the end, we come to contemplate in corporate worship the end of all of this, the end of all that. And what do we think about? We think about heaven. Heaven will be more spectacular than we can dream, and the new earth even better than heaven. But it might be surprising to hear that perhaps the best foretaste we can get on this side with the gathered church, worshiping Jesus together, is corporate worship. This doesn't mean that eternity will amount to to an unending church service, but that we will be worthfully Immersed in joy, multiplying uh, multitudes of fellow worshipers, and in heaven's adoration, we can join not only the many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, but all the other believers worshiping Jesus. But also the communion of the ransomed a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all the tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From Revelation 7, 9-10. While while the corporate worship of Jesus by the church universal is an essential element, it is the corporate worship of Jesus by the church local that is a vital means of God's grace in getting us there. The foretaste of the saints and angelic beings proclaiming the glories of God in everything that we do, is here. Not just church universal, but here in the local body. I, I just think it's really amazing to even contemplate something like that, to think about that. I mean, the focus here is on our salvation. The focus here is on the living God, And all the things that we don't understand or bring upon stress will end. And the only thing we will be doing is, guess what? Guess what we'll be doing? We will be corporately worshiping together with God for all eternity. All of us together, all his saints, corporately worshiping together. All of God's people in God's place under his rule. Nothing to do but proclaim his glories for all eternity. To see and savor the joy that comes from knowing him. To behold what he's done with no impurities in our eyes. And we get to taste a little bit, a little bit of that right now, every single Sunday. So, some of you may be, be saying, and might be thinking, and I thought about this when studying, that this is a nice picture, okay? It really is. It's a beautiful picture. And I truly, I, I want to see this. I want to believe it. I want to experience this. I want to do it every single Sunday, but there's so much evil stuff going on around me. Every time, you know, I, I look at the news or, or or people mistreating other people or just people. I run into people in the store and I see rude. I see, I see evil, right? I see people that, want to impose hate kind of like the psalmist saw and sometimes we think that god is overlooking that but my answer that i came up with is simple and complex do what the psalmist does go to the temple of corporate worship and contemplate these things And we get to do that right now. We are sitting under God's word. We get to sing his praises. We get to pray together every Sunday. And every single Sunday, we are in the temple practicing what we will be doing for all eternity. And we get to come and behold Christ every single Sunday. Asaph went to the sanctuary. The temple of public corporate worship, and God worked in his heart to change his perspective on his world. If I go back to Habakkuk, if you read Habakkuk, you'll find the same thing happens to him. But God uses corporate worship as a means of grace to his people in both of those instances. Now, as I've already said, it's a practice and it's a discipline as well, but talking about worship as a means of grace gets a little bit tricky here because as john pipery cautions us that true worship is not a means to anything okay worship is an end in itself we do not eat the feast of worship as a means to anything else happiness in god which is the heart of worship is the end of our seeking nothing beyond it can be sought as a higher goal True worship cannot be performed as a means to some other experience. So what then do we mean when we say that corporate worship is an essential means of God's grace? Can it really be something like that, even though it's the end, but it's still a means of His grace? Part of the means of His grace that we'll see here is the secret of joy. And that comes in self-forgetfulness. The secret of joy, self-forgetfulness. One important distinction to make is between the essence of worship as joy in God and the context of corporate worship as a gathered assembly. While praising Jesus together is its greatest specific expression, worship in general is bigger than just a gathered church it is and we went over that it's not just sunday mornings but it's from everyday life and related to this is a distinction between how we think about corporate worship our motivations and maybe even benefits and how we experience it in the moment there's more to be said about the graces and the blessings that God gives only in the meeting together with other believers, which can inspire our faithful engagement and help us appreciate the irreplaceable role of corporate worship in our Christian health and growth. First question is, where should we turn our hearts and minds collectively in the moment of corporate worship to experience this self-forgetting, this self-forgetfulness grace that we experience? The answer is we're not supposed to be self-consciously preoccupied with how we're being strengthened or what graces we are receiving. Rather, our focus together is the crucified, risen Christ and the incomparable excellencies of his person and work. Corporate worship is a means of grace, not when we're caught up with what we're doing, but when we experience the secret of worship, the joy of self-forgetfulness, as we become preoccupied together with Jesus and his manifold perfections. See then this application to corporate worship in the summary by John Piper. All genuine emotion is an end to itself. It's not consciously caused as a means to something else. This does not mean that we cannot or should not seek to have certain feelings. We should and we can. But we can put ourselves in situations like corporate worship where the feeling may be more readily available. But in the moment of authentic emotion, the kindled, when you are in the moment of, that authentic emotion, calculation vanishes. When you are singing with all the saints, your calculation, what you are trying to figure out, disappears. What are you focused on? Focused on Christ, right? And that kind of sums up What John Piper says, like, when I was standing there moments ago, I got to experience the graces of corporate worship in a different way than I get to experience up here every every other Sunday. But I got to experience a forgetfulness of myself, of what's going on around me, and I was able to sit before the throne of God and just behold His glory. And with all the saints proclaiming the beauty that is to be held in Jesus Christ. That's self-forgetfulness. We all do that in different ways and different fashions of our life. A lot of us try to forget ourselves by playing video games, uh, watching TV, doing different things like that. But this place that God has created for us, specifically with focus and purpose, allows you, if not for an hour and a half, a week, to sit at the throne of Christ. To see the graces. We get to experience the feeling of worshiping God without reference or logical or practical implications. We get to be here. In this way, corporate worship is, which in one sense, is not a means to anything else. It's powerful. And I would argue, I would say it it is the most powerful thing. And it's the most powerful means of grace for the Christian life. So, we see this in Psalm 73. I'm going to We're going to go back here and we're going to look at this at verse 25. The psalmist, after he goes to the temple and is in that self-forgetful throng of the saints, you know, proclaiming the glories of God, focusing only on that. What's, What's his conclusion? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Does he say, hey God, why don't, why don't we strike down all these evil, arrogant people? All these things. Why, why am I not, you know, having all the riches? Why am I not having all of these things? No, he, he says, who, am I, who have I in heaven but you? Who have I in heaven but you? This is a time when Asaph is able to see through his calculations and see God clearly. He was confronted with arrogance, and his envy and joyously uh, proclaimed, I'm sorry, he was confronted with arrogance, his own arrogance when he was in corporate worship, and his envy. And he was confronted with all of those things and was able to joyously proclaim, whom have I in heaven but you? I desire nothing besides you, nothing. You have shown me that there is nothing here worth more than you. My heart and flesh, they fail. But God is the strength and my portion. Do you know Asaph was thinking, do you think like Asaph was thinking about himself? Or do you think he was thinking about other things happening around him when he was saying these things? Yes, no, amen. Um, he wasn't. He forgot himself. And he sat in the streams of the grace given by worship of the one true God. So I urge us all to come to corporate worship for the many blessings and then let the calculations vanish as you lose yourself in the blessed. Get yourself there on a slow day with a reminder about how good it will be for you if you do. And as a gathered gathering begins, go hard. Go hard after the goodness of God and seek to forget yourself as you focus on his son. I do this in a very practical way every Sunday after I do uh, practice, you know, before we get going here, we rehearse. And I make it a point to leave. Just to leave. Because I have to come back And in those moments of silence and things, I'm coming back to lose myself to proclaim the glories of God. If I come here fast-paced, I'm like, okay, church, my checklist, this is what I need to do. I need to get this off, do this, that, and the other. Then I'm missing the point, and I'm missing out on the blessings. And I know a lot of us kind of have some of those tendencies Checklist kind of people, or this is just what I do. We need to be intentional with this. Some of us, for various reasons, and I'm not saying that never is this not okay, but we come, we come late, we come weary, we come not rested, we come with all these preconceived and preoccupations of our lives. And we just don't get to experience the blessing of just sitting and adoring God, sitting under His Word, praying to Him, hearing the glories proclaimed from the pulpit, and being able to apply that to our lives and our hearts. You get that every single Sunday. And I'm with you. I'm human-like, right? I, there's some Sundays I don't feel like being here. But studying the psalm, it, it made me, it rekindled even more a fire that has continued to go uh, in my life and the way God's been leaving me to, to worship Him and importantly, in corporate worship and how this is an experience unlike anything else. To taste heaven for an hour and a half every Sunday morning. What could be more rewarding than that? So, as I say that, I know what are the means? So we get. To, so we're supposed to be self-forgetful, and worship is the means. It's the end. It's. It's what it is. Well, for all us practical people like myself, um, we. I'm going to give you five li, five benefits. Not ten, but five. Five benefits of corporate worship. I know. You know. Some of us are like, how does this work? What's it, you know, like, okay, so I'm supposed to come and say I'm not supposed to be tired. I'm supposed to be uh, adoring Jesus. Okay, I think I, but, but like, what's the benefit of that? Well, here we go. Awakening. Number one, awakening. Often we come into corporate worship with a feeling or a sense, and sometimes like a spiritual fog. Like we come a little bit run down. But during the rough and tumble of the week, the hard knocks keep falling. The world can disorient us. It can mate, mate us and make us think that the world is reality. And that's what's truly important. But when we come here, we get an awakening. We get clear heads. We get to recalibrate our spirit. We get to jumpstart our slow hearts. As we mentioned before, how Martin Luther found corporate uh, worship, powerful, in his and is awakening in spiritual fire. He says, at home, in my house, there's no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when there is a multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. Better than Luther, though, is the experience that we just went over in Psalm 73. He's distraught and upset, but the fog clears when he is consciously in the presence of God. When I thought of how to understand this, the psalmist says, it seemed to me a weary task until I went into the sanctuary. He was in battle. The spiritual haze was thick, but the breakthrough came in the context of worship. So, awakening. The second benefit, Assurance. Assurance. A second benefit is the community dynamic, which means not only meeting our good desires for the belonging and shared mission, fellowship, but also providing a catalyst for our assurance. While we may admire figures like Luther, who seemingly stood alone, they were up against the world, we must remember that God has said it is not good to be alone and he did this in the first book genesis 2. such heroes were the product of their days and inevitably their stories have been thinned into distant history but it's not the collective ideas of luther that truly stood alone but he himself was a part of a faithful community that fostered and strengthened his otherwise unpopular beliefs. And so this is how it is with us. We were not made to stand solo with no one else around us. Even in times of trouble like Elijah, God gave him 7,000 who hadn't abandoned the truth. God made for us a community, and her name is the church. And being part of this great and local global community plays an important role in assuring us not only that we are not deceiving ourselves and pretending our profession is credible, but also that we truly know whom we have believed. And worship in the local church just points us to the worship of the universal church. And that Jesus has a people for many nations. And one day, it will include every nation. So we see the means of grace awakening. We see the assurance brought on through corporate worship. And then corporate worship also plays an indispensable part in our advance. Our advance plays a part in our sanctification Our progressive growth, if you call it sanctification, is a progressive growth in being transformed into the image of Jesus. Corporate worship is for our general upbuilding and encouragement, but also in beholding Jesus together. We all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Christian growth is not just something that we take as a sermon application and then work it into our lives that week. As Tim Keller says, sanctification can happen on the spot. As we sit under the gospel preaching and engage in corporate worship. May God make them many. When the Holy Spirit takes the scripture read the prayer spoken, the chorus singing, our truth preached, and it it presses right into our need. That's sanctification. That's immediate. And that's experiencing corporate worship. It doesn't just merely, corporate worship just doesn't merely inform our Christian walk, but it heals us or it transforms us in a moment. When we join in corporate worship, God loves not only the change in our minds, but the change in our hearts right then and right there. Advance. Awakening assurance, advance. Accepting another's leading. I love this part. I love accepting other people's leading because, you know, a lot of times I don't, I don't see myself as good of a leader. But I really, um, I enjoy this because the distinction between public and private worship is vast when it comes to this. This kind of like breaks it out. You know, we have our personal Bible intake and prayer in our place and and, and, uh, in our places of home, and we could be inattentive, but corporate worship reminds us that our faith is fundamentally receptive. Not our own initiative. Our faith was brought on by us, right? God chose us from the foundations of the earth, right? It's like God is molding us. Our hearts want to seek lustful things, desire evils, right? We can, you know, go through the whole, you know, Romans stuff. But what I I want us to see here is that it's not our own initiative in which we accept and we proclaim the glories of God. It's, it's other people being able to proclaim and give us the Word, whether it be through correction, through speech, through song. In private devotions, we lead ourselves in some sense, and in corporate worship, we are made to receive the leading of others. In private worship. We're in the driver's seat in some sense. We decide what passage to read, when to pray, what to pray, how long to linger in the Bible reading and meditation, what songs to listen to or sing, uh, what gospel truths to preach to ourselves and maybe even children, and what applications to even consider. But in corporate worship, we respond. We follow Others preach and pray and select the songs and choose how long to linger in each element. We're positioned to receive. It's a wonderful thing in our personal devotions to make such choices, but it is also good for us to practice engaging with God when someone other than ourselves is making the calls. Corporate worship demands that we discipline ourselves to respond and not only pursue God on our own and not only pursue God on our own terms. It is an opportunity to embrace being led and not always taking the lead. And our fifth and final application is accented joy. It is a heightened experience of worship in the corporate context. Our own awe is accented. Our own awe is increased and our own joy is doubled when we worship. This is done when we worship Jesus together. There's a Swedish proverb. It says a shared joy is a double joy. In corporate worship, the graces and the benefits were uniquely we un- are where we uniquely not only enjoy not only awakening, assurance, advance, and accepting others' leadership, but delight in Jesus himself as we magnify him together with all the other people in the sanctuary. The secret joy of corporate worship is not only self-forgetfulness, or to put it positively, preoccupation with Jesus and his glory, but also the happy awareness that we are not alone in having our souls satisfied in Him. So those are the primary five benefits that we see in Scripture to corporate worship. We get an idea of the importance of corporate worship throughout the Psalms. I encourage you to just read over those, but specifically Psalm 73 and then the prophet Habakkuk, you see corporate worship as a means of grace by God changing their hearts from the preoccupation of the, the world to themselves to God. I pray, I pray we see the importance of being in community and in this corporate worship. I would like for us to Spend a few moments in silent reflection, following my lead. I appreciate it, and we will pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are just so good to your people. God, you've given us so many blessings from your word. You've given us everything, breath, life. You've given us your church in which we can be blessed in community with one another as we proclaim the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I ask that our hearts would be worshiping in every moment of every day. We do know that worship is not just a feeling, an emotion, it's an action, it's an understanding. But let us see one of the greatest graces that comes from worshiping together corporately with the body. So God, guide our hearts. Be with us and help us to reflect on these graces. And I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.